0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 241 for June 15th, 2022. I'm your host, Chris Webster, and on today's show, we talk about different ways to get published. So open that new expense account because your huge advance is coming and because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in Northern California. Good morning. Heather in, I don't know, Southern California.
3: (laughs) Good morning, or, well, welcome, everyone.
2: That's right. And uh, Andrew. Andrew, also in Southern California.
0: Hey, guys. How's it going?
2: All right. And I am in Ocean Shores, Washington. Rainy Ocean Shores, Washington. Mm. It uh, The rest of the world, uh, the rest of the country, I was looking at the weather last night. It's going to have highs this week in like much of Central Valley, California, on into the southwest and over into the southeast of like 100 plus degrees. Pretty sure the high every day this week and next week in Ocean Shores, Washington is 60 and raining. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy the difference up here. Uh, I just ugh, it, I love it. Although we're totally sucked in and it rained all day yesterday.
4: Yeah. Last week, last week I went to go visit my brother in Portland and we went to the zoo. Yeah. And uh, I I learned real quick the difference between kids born in the Pacific Northwest and kids born in Tucson, (laughs) (laughs) because when rain touches a kid from Tucson, like just sadness, you know, you just, I don't care about seeing that tiger. I just want to go, you know, and then the other kids are like, what's wrong? You know, they're soaked all the way. Their pants are soaked they're totally yeah. soaked, you know. Well, yeah, let's go see the tiger. And my kids are just like, "Yeah, it's raining. Like let's just go. That's it. The, the day's over, it's raining." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> last week
2: last week we were up in uh, a little tiny tiny town called Quilcene, Washington, and it's just outside like Bremerton, Paulsbow area on the on the Washington Peninsula as a, a ferry ride from uh, Seattle. And there was a family up there next to uh, an old family friend of ours that has like this. It's kind of a family reunion, but they just invite anybody in. So we were hanging up there for the three days of Memorial Day weekend, and it's outside. They're camping. And it was literally raining the entire time. And some of the kids didn't even have like shoes on. I mean, it's upper fifties, low sixties, it's raining, it's muddy. They're just running around. We're sitting by the campfire and, you know, having good food. And because one of the people that kind of runs the whole thing with one of the the matriarch, she's actually an executive chef at a, at a fancy restaurant. And uh, so the food was amazing. And you know, nobody cared that it was raining. You just wore a rain jacket and, you know, we're all sitting out there and it just, it just didn't matter. <laughs> That's Pacific Northwest for you.
4: Yeah, so no, no joke. Just, <laughs> it doesn't like rain is not a thing. No one cares about rain in the Pacific Northwest because if they did, they wouldn't actually be able to go outside right, ever. Exactly. That's right. That's and right. When I, when I lived in Seattle too, I remember, you know, I I took the bus, so I'd get to, I had a rain jacket on and an umbrella and I'm like, I mean, everything but a force shield to keep water from touching me. (laughs) And I'd get to work, you know, my pants are reasonably dry. They dry off in a few, a little while. My colleagues would come with just some, you know, cotton hoodie pants, totally (laughs) soaked. And then we'd go home at like five o'clock and their pants were still wet. And I was like, are your feet wet? They're kind of like, yeah. And I was like, we just were in this office for eight hours and your feet were wet the whole time and your legs were wet the whole time. They just kind That's of look at bit. me like it's Seattle, bro. Like, what are you what? <laughs> what are you talking about? We're wet yeah. all the time. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. All right. Well, getting to today's topic, it is Andrew's shot this time, and we are somewhat revisiting a topic we've talked about a long time ago, but this, this is an ever-changing discussion, and it's good to have it again for people that are interested. So, Andrew, why don't you introduce our topic today?
0: Sure. I thought today we would do how to publish in archaeology for two reasons. Reason number one is we touched on this last time, and it seemed to be kind of a natural flow from our conversations from two weeks ago. And also, mm-hmm. I, I have kept a little list to myself every so often of like ideas I have for the podcast, and it was on there as well. So I'm like, ah, two for two, you know, let's, let's just do how to publish. So I, I thought we could just take the time. And what's really cool here is the people we have right now on the podcast, we all have publishing stories in different realms of publishing. As I thought about my own experience and, and maybe your guys too, we'll see what you guys say. Uh, When you're, when you're writing a book, or an article or, or anything like that. It's funny. It's, it's a really solo journey. It can re- be a really lonely journey when you're, <laughs> when you're doing it, because kind of the nature of yeah. the beast, you're doing it by yourself, you know, and also just that whole, the whole world of like, how to do this. And if you meet with publishers, you're like, am I doing this right? Am I totally getting shafted? Mm-hmm. Are they taking advantage of me? You know, and, I thought that we could just help our audience, you know, and, and be like, Hey guys, this is our experiences in the real world. Your mileage may vary, but we're going to try our best to help you out.
4: Yeah, indeed. That's, that's a good topic. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's kind of like three different ways to publish. And my favorite way is just to like, uh, write on your own blog. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, then you just have to deal with the people who've read it and they try to give you comments slash edits on what's happening, but you just get to write and, and you know, that's my favorite way. Cause it just flows out and you publish it and then you just sit back and it's done. You know, uh,
2: a question about that bill, because yeah. you've been writing on your blog for, for quite some time now you've had some uh-huh. posts that in fact, quite a few posts that have really hit and, and resonated with people and been shared and commented on when the, when it's shared I'm like, social media. I'm wondering, you know, a lot of t- a lot of times one of the reasons people write, which is probably the first thing you got to look at is, you know, why are you writing what you want to write? Is it because you're passionate about the topic or is it because to be honest, to be totally honest, you're trying to gain a little bit of credibility in in a topic or a field or something like that? How has your blog helped or hurt you in I guess, job searches and, you know, things like that. I mean, right. As soon as you got out of your PhD, I mean, you pretty much went straight into Berkeley. I don't know if (laughs) your blog or this podcast or those other outlets helped you or, or was something you had to explain away.
4: Yeah. Explain away. Right. Well, it is definitely (laughs) one of the reasons behind uh, the the radio silence the last few years of trying to get tenure. I realized like, man, I got 200 and some posts on here and some of this stuff doesn't really sound very good for other professors. If they read it, they're probably going to get pretty pissed off at what I've said on the internet. Stuff like, you know, if you're a field tech and you've worked 40 hours a week for like three or four years, you probably know more than every assistant professor at your university when you go get your master's (laughs) because you actually know how to do archaeology. Like you were out there outside doing it for real, standing next to a backhoe, you know, eating a taquito from a gas station to survive. That's not someone who went to Columbia and got an NSF grant. They don't know about that life. So that kind of stuff, you know, I have been keeping my mouth shut on that stuff the last few years. So I guess, you know, I've been, you know, quiet, essentially. I got blog posts and I don't post them. I actually was writing one this last weekend and I was like, yeah, I don't think I should post this till I get tenure, right? But So so that's one way, right? Because I'm super concerned that I will say something on my blog that someone will get frustrated. But I don't take blog posts down either. So Mm -hmm. the ones that people don't like, you know, I will add a note or comment it, uh, in the post later on, but I, I leave them published, you know, so they just sit there. So anyone can see that stuff as long as I pay for my hosting. Right. So I don't know if it, I, I guess maybe it's kind of hindered me, right. Cause I keep quiet and I don't say a lot of stuff on my blog anymore and yeah. just really, uh, focus on the podcast. I will say though that, it, you know, the other stuff that I had to do took up a lot of the time that I was writing blog posts. because three and 4,000 word blog posts take a long time to write, but those words also had to be applied towards other stuff like grant applications and articles and book chapters and, you know, the mm-hmm. book that I wrote, uh, for tenure. So uh, when it comes to the amount of hours a day, I just haven't had as many hours to write
0: on my blog right? because I had to devote those to other kinds of things. I could totally see that. Although I think, um, I think you bring up two cool things, Bill. First, I, I think the blog post is a great idea for authors out there wanting to start because it it shows you're serious, you know, like you will actually yeah. write because anyone can have an idea. Anyone can be like, oh, I got this great idea for this book. And I'm like, okay, show me your chapters. You know, yeah. it's a very different thing to actually do the stuff. So yeah, a blog is kind of proof of concept where it's like, yeah, I will actually write. And uh-huh. I also think you do another thing that's important is that you're bold and you're yourself in your blog post, And I would say anyone out there who's thinking of writing, you have to be bold. You have to be yourself. You can't like half-ass it. You know, you, yeah. you have to just, you you just have to hang it out there and be honest because it'll make your writing that much better.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I know that now, cause I'm going up for tenure. That's actually part of my tenure package though. The podcast and the blogging and the, and the other sure. informal publications, they're public putting that in there. Yeah. Well, I don't know how we're counting it because it's like a new thing. <laughs> the thing is yeah. only designed for like, how much committee work have you done? How many books uh, have did. you written? How many classes did you teach? There's no like, you know, how many podcasts and engagement have you had? How many public talks did you give on, you know, zoom? How many other things yeah. have you done? It's only like money pages written classes taught, you know, like right. how much have you done of those things? So we're trying to figure out some kind of way. Cause you know it's it's still a form of publication, and it's yes. out there. and it's actually getting way more attention than any of the articles I write. So yes, uh, I don't know I don't know how that'll count. We're writing it in there. It's going in there now, but you know I, I was also doing all the other traditional stuff too, as far as writing.
0: Well, so you're doing all the stuff and and you know speaking yeah. of that I was I was trying to figure out like, okay, what kind of outlets of publications are there? so that so we have like the blog, there's gray literature where you just kind of write a CRM report. You know, yeah. there's peer reviewed journal where it's, you know, much more sort of academic kind of hoity toity. You have the edited volume, which is like a peer reviewed journal, but you kind of write the paper for a publication. You kind of do one chapter of a book, um, self-publishing, which I want to get to that, uh, Bill, I know that you've done. And then I would say you yeah. have classic, a classic publisher of a small publishing company and then classic publisher of a large publishing company. And, and yeah. those were the ones mm-hmm. I could kind of Tease out if I was thinking of you know the the options for publishing something.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there. Yeah, you're writing for yourself or doing informal stuff, blogging, podcasting, and stuff like that. Then there's also there's also all the other like you said the gray literature, and then there's the Mm -hmm. other stuff that's you know reviewed by other PhDs, right? So I I think that I wouldn't have been able to blog if I hadn't written CRM reports because you got to write on command. Seriously, the hours are ticking. And if you don't write it and it's not grammatically correct and logical and stuff like that, I don't really know how you're going to stay in CRM. Like, mm-hmm, that's man. one of the, the big differences. And if you, if you never, you know, if you never really learn how to write, at, yes. you know, in cultural resources, and I'd say that you get a huge assist in cultural resources because you always have boilerplate, right? And because, like, plagiarism is a different kind of thing in CRM. It's bad to plagiarize another company, but your own thing is just like, you know, keep mixing the pot. And so that really does help because you've got chunks already written and you just have to edit it. And there's also logic behind how those paragraphs and that other stuff is put together. When you get taught how to write, which uh, one of the things that I really got helped out my company that I first worked for in Seattle, was a lot of us master students, we weren't really good at writing and we were causing a lot of uh, a lot of delays and a lot of problems because the higher ups had to keep editing what we were writing because no yep. one ever taught us how to write. And so there was a technical writing company that the people, the the principal investigators hired this group to teach us how to write. And those techniques, man, I'm telling you, the stuff that I learned back in like 2004, 2005, I still rehash it in like every blog post, every sentence, every essay that a student writes. That's how I edit their stuff because that's the foundational technical writing that exists in the English speaking world. And it's, it's logical. And if you figure out how to build sentences and paragraphs properly, you can write anything you want in archaeology. And so, you know, if I hadn't gotten that and I hadn't had to write letter reports and little survey reports and all that stuff, then I wouldn't be able to write a coherent blog post. Yeah, And I can see that in other people's blogs. I can see that in the cut and paste news world that we live, that people just they're not writing proper paragraphs and Mm -hmm. the stuff stinks, Mm -hmm. you know?
3: Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's shocking to me when we had somebody come in that that's one of the hardest skills to find is are people that can write and write well, where most of the time I'm having to rewrite things and it it can be very, it's difficult because it takes so much extra time. And then you think to yourself, okay, I should just write this to, you know, to start with, I'm going to rewrite it myself in the CRM business. I think, for people who manage, uh, part of your job is training people. And, you know, I've created templates to teach people to fill in the blank first, to learn through filling in the blank. And hopefully then they're they're learning how to structure the, the report and how <laughs> to structure certain paragraphs and how to treat, you know, certain sections of a report. Because when I first started, I had a very kind of a mixture of of data presentation and an editorial style, which for technical writing is not as efficient. Reports shouldn't be editorial uh, for the most part. And so it's a very different style of writing. And I really enjoyed the style of writing I used when I was in school. And I realized that that doesn't work for CRM reports necessarily, not totally. And so it had to shift how I wrote in general, and now I'm a very different writer than I was, you know, 15 years ago, people are not taught. I mean, they don't even use tenses correctly. They don't know how to, you know, have a tense and stay with the same tense ac- across the board. And actually it is a little more difficult, I think in specifically in our business, because you are talking about the past quite a bit. And so you're trying to shift from presenting information in the present when you're talking about things in the past, I know can be complicated, but it really people do have to think about that. And I don't think anybody even, I don't see people realizing that that is something that they should be thinking about when they're writing, you know, sections for a report. And so um, I think, you know, I know we're kind of getting off on the writing aspect here, (laughs) but I think, (laughs) I think that, you know, CRM writing is such an important skill and they're not being taught that in, in school. uh, I don't think personally, because most people that come out that I we really are teaching people from scratch in how to technically write.
4: Right, yeah. No, I I actually am. <laughs> I'm doing what yeah. my eighth grade teacher taught me, you know, Thank the you. simple – I put a video in here. It's a video that's, like, required for all my students. If you do this, I guarantee you you're going to get an A in my class because it's really difficult to uh, – if you do – if you write proper paragraphs and proper essays, you have fulfilled the obligations of the assignment. And it's very difficult to get anything less than an A unless you like totally miss the point on what you're doing but even still it'll be coherent in quality and th- when I see people write like this it's what I was taught when I was like in eighth grade English they don't teach diagramming sentences. this yes. is the background of that um, technical writing course that we had to take you know almost 20 years ago this is what is and so like watching this video I t- I show all my students and I know the students who practice this well get grant they get grants they get scholarships they get in to graduate programs, they get all kinds of stuff because they know how to logically write. I mean, yes. you can even, you can dispute your bill with Verizon if you properly know how to write a paragraph.
3: Yes. And, you know, I think, I i mean, in the defense of u- university professors, I, it can be pretty overwhelming because uh, students coming in from high school, they're not being taught this. We're, we're just, unfortunately, in our public school system, we're not teaching people how to write.
4: Yeah, but- yeah. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to okay. say, also, once again, the professors don't know how to write. Like, read Stop. what they write. It is not <laughs> yeah. quality. And you really? can look at the paragraphs and figure out that it doesn't make any sense. You look at these long, one-page paragraphs. They're just yeah. you know, pasted together with semicolons, all kinds of crazy adjective yeah. use, very wow. unclear sentences and stuff, and it gets published. Because the publisher... Well, we'll talk about this in the next segment. Yeah. But those Horrible. who are publishing these articles are not there to police our grammar it's yes. there to just get content for people to yeah, look at it
3: true and and you do see that in news articles yeah. that is is actually pretty shocking right. in the last few years yeah
4: okay so
2: let's go ahead and take a break and on the other side yeah we'll get into a little bit more publishing maybe some book publishing stuff so we'll do that in a minute Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on and core structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes.
0: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE.
2: Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 241, and we are joined by Doug. Doug, how's it going? Hey, everyone. All right. So we're going to continue talking about publishing, and to kick off segment two, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Author
0: Professor Andrew Kinkala. I up. am so important, but I do have a couple other titles which you didn't get in there, and I'm very angry. Uh, <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, it's something too.
3: Just get it straight. <laughs> I got straight a few for time. you, Andrew. <laughs> I got a few for you, Andrew, but I don't think yeah, it's appropriate
0: yeah. on a
2: podcast. <laughs> <So> I'm sure <laughs> there are a few more.
0: Look, look, I am a professional, so I'm going to bring it back and get through this. <laughs> uh, so uh yeah last the the last bit there we were talking about publishing kind of in the CRM world and technical writing and that kind of thing which is a skill that is is so good to have if you have it. I know I'm classically it's one of my difficulties but on the on the flip side on the, on the complete other side of the coin if you're trying to publish something and you want to go to a publisher you're like oh I have an idea for a book. There's a couple of different ways to go about that and I know I personally mm-hmm. had a ton of questions about this but for myself, I, I, I would ask, I asked colleagues and other people, and I have to say that their answers didn't help me that much. And I think it, it goes back to what we touched on last time, uh, which is it's such a solo effort and there's so much variety. But what I would say shortly is if you meet with a publisher, in my experience, they'll always say that your idea is great, no matter what, because they want <laughs> right of first refusal. What if you come up with an awesome book? You know, so almost yeah. no matter what you say, you know, they'll be like, Oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds Oh, send it to me. So if you do have an idea for a book, I would definitely write it down though. And the pr- I'm telling you, the proof is in the steel in the walls. Meaning, yes, again, yes, you can have an idea, but write it out. And as you're writing your idea, I would do a few things. First, most publishers' websites have a little tab that'll say, like, for the author. Yeah. Go there. And and they'll have the directions on what they want for submissions. And most of them are very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll, they'll say that, that they want, like, a title. They want, like, expanded table of contents where you kind of explain what each chapter is. And then they'll want you to write one chapter. It's usually chapter one, but it's whatever you have the most kind of impetus to write. So... That to me is a major, major step. If people are interested in publishing, it's actually writing out that prospectus, you know, and you'll also have to answer questions like, what books does this compete with? And you have to think like a business person at that moment. You can't just be like, well, my awesome idea competes with nothing just because it's me. No, (laughs) the world doesn't care. You have to think as a publisher, you know, you have to be like, oh, yeah, who's going to actually buy this? And how much is it going to cost? And is it going to be color photos or black and white? You know, there's there's a lot there, but I would not be fearful of meeting with a publisher or anything like that. Just I would do it. I would be professional about it, uh, meet with different publishers. It's so funny, like ones that you think would never want it, might totally want it and vice versa. So Mm -hmm. variety is the spice of life when when meeting with publishers.
2: I think, too, in my experience anyway, and my experience is extremely limited and uh, very fortunate, to be honest. But in my experience, and there's there's some other things to look at as well, especially the type of publisher that you're looking at. Right. So if they've already got a book that or or a series of books or a number of books that are exactly like the one that you want to write, not that it would be the same book, but it's like in the same vein they don't necessarily want to compete with themselves. You know what I mean? Right. So if they've already got something that's doing really well, like I wouldn't approach Tom King's publisher and say, I want to write a book called Cultural Laws in Practice. They're probably not going to do it, right? He's on like the seventh (laughs) edition or something. So, you know, that's just too much competition. And, but these smaller publishers too, you got to think, you got to figure, you're not talking to Random House here, right? You're not trying to, Mm -hmm. to write the next Harry Potter. If you are, and you're Brian Fagan, then you better have a pedigree like he does and, and the and the books that he already does in order to get a, a, a publisher like that because they're likely going to give you some kind of an advance or something to yeah. actually write this book. But you have to have the, the cred to do that. But more than likely, you're going to approach somebody who's a little smaller, like I did randomly, not even looking to publish a book. I saw the Left Coast Press table and I'd heard about Left Coast Press. Tom King had published there quite extensively and other people had right. published there. And it just, Left Coast Press was like a publisher for archaeology books, right? And it's like a small publisher for archaeology books. They're based in California. I like it just, they seemed like a good fit. And I had quite a few blog posts and I had a a whole series of blog posts that I'd actually put together. I'd, I'd pulled from my blog. I'd fleshed out the posts a little bit and I put them all into a PDF and it was, I don't know, it was already basically something that was done. And I was thinking about just making an ebook or some sort of collection out of it. So people could get this collection of information that I'd already written. And I just showed it to the person at the Left Coast press table at a conference. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, Does this, I wasn't even asking them to publish it. I was just like, Hey, do you guys know, because you'd be the ones to know this, if anything like this exists? And she was, she took a look at it and she was like, Basically, she's like, No, send us a proposal. And I was like, Oh, oh well, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just kind of asking if this was on the market. So I sent her a proposal. And because I basically had the thing already written, they took it. So I've submitted, well, I've actually submitted two book proposals and one of them got selected. So, And they're for two different books. I actually tried submitting to the the Idiot's Guide, I think it was, or something like that, to do like a CRM archaeology for dummies or idiots or whichever, right. whichever one that was. Great and idea. And they said, no, they said it's too much of a niche topic. And I'm like, you have the Idiot's Guide to Opera. Like, are you kidding yeah. me right now? So... <laughs> Anyway, they didn't do it, <laughs> but yeah, but that was my experience with left coast is that the point I wanted to make with that is go to, if you go to conferences and you have an idea for a book, like Andrew said, have a table of contents. So you, so you know what the book is going to be structured, like have a chapter written or at least most of a chapter written so they can at least see your writing style. And not that they will necessarily look at it at the conference, but they'll know you're serious if you show up with that. And sometimes those people working in the tables are the editors. They're not just if it's a smaller company, they don't have like lackeys that go to conferences. It's them that go to the conferences. Yep. Right. So yep. talk to them and, and and talk to them as though they're the editor. You may not know they're the editor, but pretend that they are just in case you don't want to piss them off.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, that was my that was the first editor I ever talked to was Left Coast Press The editor himself was at the conference, you know, and so I I ultimately didn't work with left coast press because they were gone by the time, you know, I did my textbook and I was bummed because they were great. But uh, that's, that's so smart. What you you bring up is to, you know, sort of pitch at those conferences or just strike up the conversation Mm -hmm. and see what they see, what they say. I will say too, that you'll get denied. I actually got accepted by a big publishing place for my textbook originally. And I went way Mm -hmm. down the rabbit hole with them. I I did all the prospectus. It was like accepted. Yeah, I'd written the first chapter. It it had gone out for review. The reviews had been actually pretty good. And um, Mm -hmm. at the eleventh hour, they were like, "Oh, by the way, you need to change all this stuff, right?" And they wanted (laughs) me to make my textbook exactly what I like rallied against because my thing was like, "Look, I'm going to make my textbook small and cheap and fun." And they were like, oh, you have yeah. to add five chapters and you have to find you have to find a co-author from a four year university, which made me so pissed. Mm. I was just mm. like, "Oh my no, God. yeah, no. And yeah. yeah. And just go away. So I, I had a real bitter pill to swallow from that. But then and I was like, just thought I was through with it. But then like eight or nine months later, I got in touch with a smaller publishing company and they were totally into what I was saying. And they were great. It was Kendall Hunt who, who I ultimately mm-hmm. went with. And and those guys were, they got it, you know, like they got my idea, which I thought was so great. Well, the other place never really got it, you know? So I, yeah. I it ultimately turned out really good for me. Nice. I'm, I'm okay.
3: curious. So, you know, we're just talking about how do you do this? If this is what, you know, how do you publish if you want to publish? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you think people should be thinking whether or not they should publish? Because, you know, there's a lot of people that want, to say they've written a book and they've published a book and just for the ego part of it. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, what your thought is on at what point really should you publish? Should you really publish? You do it. I mean, like I said, it's such a, it's such a solo
0: effort that like, it has to be your baby. It's just like a dissertation or anything else. Like, like you have to think about it all the time. You have to do it anyways. Even when people tell you you shouldn't do it, you're still going to do it. Like you have to have that drive. It's if it's just some weird ego massage, like you're not going to have the drive, you know, like you have to have that. You have to be like, I need to publish this thing and the world needs to see it, you know, because you have to push yourself through those tough times.
3: But there's pretty big egos out
0: there. Yeah, <laughs>
3: well, that might actually get them through writing a book that they maybe. shouldn't. Right, I've written, I've written. Sorry, I've read some books. I thought to myself, I don't, you know, I don't know that that they really should have been written. Yeah. That is really responsible. Well, somebody published it. Yeah, exactly. I yeah.
2: I think Andrew's right, though. You you have to have a passion for it. Right. It has to be it has to yeah. be something you really want to do, unless it's just like your 10th book and you're just like what you do now is crank out books. Right. And then it right. becomes like an obligation to find another topic to write a book about. I feel like Brian Fagan and Tom King are in that group. Right. Like they're True. known as book authors. So like, what's my next book? But for right. people who's a this is their first book, it's like. You're going to go down this. You're not going to make a lot of money on it. And you're probably not going to make any money on it. Come, coming down to the ROI, you're you're probably going to lose a lot more money when you value your time than than you're right. going to make. Uh, right. Unless oh, you're yeah. writing, unless you're writing a textbook that is you know really expensive and a lot of people buy it, then you might actually make some cash. But for most people, I think that first book is just not going to be, you're just not going to make anything except for credibility from it. And that that's mm-hmm. where the topic, the the publisher and, and how you promote it and all that, you know, really comes into play. But yeah, I well, think self-publishing, uh, I,
3: I think, yeah, I think self-publishing is where I'm thinking, you know, people can go and publish whatever they want. And that's where you don't have well, that gate, yeah. uh, that gatekeeper yeah. where, you know, people yeah. are like, You know, this is not a good idea.
1: I think there's a couple of things you need to look at. One is, so I mean, obviously we're the CRM podcast, but there'll be a couple of people going down the academia route, where their department it has to be a book, like that's that's what they have to do to be able to get tenure, and there are departments like that around the world. So that's that's basically what you end up with. But um, I think if people are also thinking about a book, you should really have a deep understanding of the mediums I agree. and understand, mm-hmm. you know, a book is a specific type of medium It has to be a book length topic and, you know, not everything needs to be a book. So I think that's something else people yep. need to consider is good point. Do you just want a book because you want a book right? or do, is it the right medium? And I think that's, that's something people need to think about. Cause
3: it's a, it could be expensive.
1: Yeah. 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 But-
3: It's medium and also
0: audience. You know what I mean? You also think like, who's actually, who actually cares? Who am I talking to? So yeah, I think Doug brings up a great point. And then based on your audience, you can go to the medium that will most serve the audience of what you're talking about.
3: I I like Bill's idea that, you know, starting with a blog and really kind of testing it out and seeing whether or not, and, and exactly what Chris was saying is that, you know, over time you were writing these articles and you realized, you know what, there's enough here. So right. you have to be mm-hmm. patient and not just want to jump into I'm going to write a book, but start writing and figure out really is there something here that other exactly. people haven't done that you have a unique yeah. perspective on and yeah. you and that you actually have the credibility to write it. There are yes. people that mm-hmm. have written books that uh, personally, it, it's a little upsetting because you know there's a lot of people that think, oh, there's a book on this and they automatically have credibility because the person has the book when that's not true. I mean, there's a lot of books out there that are that, that have a lot of crap in them <laughs> yeah, and you can be steering you know. people the wrong way.
0: Yeah. yeah, but it's like turn that frown upside down kind of thing. You see those books yeah. and it should give you drive to be like, you know what?
1: Mine's yes. going to be better. This is great. Those are right. crap. You know, right. I, I love stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So- I would also add that, you know, part of having a publisher is they can give you support and sometimes they also just wave it through as we've sort of been talking about. Uh So, you know, also like when you're beyond medium is also thinking about what you want to get out of having a book. So some people want a book, as we've been talking about, to like have their street cred or whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call it. But, you know, if if your goal is to actually like maybe improve on the topic and you won't really care about street cred or, you know, academic uh, credibility or whatever it is – I think you can do self-publishing. Also, you can you can hire editors. You can have friends look at it. I think there are good ways to have, you know, as someone else on this podcast who's done has done a lot of self-publishing, and um, we've actually me, Chris, and Bill self-published uh, mm-hmm. blogging archaeology. I think you can you could do a really good job, probably even a better job than some publishers, if you're willing to put the work into it and willing to find people to actually like tell you that's crap cut this. You're a horrible writer. Yeah. Re-write. You, you need that honest feedback. I think you can get yeah. that outside of a, um, a publisher. So, you know, I think you sh- people shouldn't look down on self-publishing if your goal is to get a, a topic out there or, mm-hmm. you know, spread the knowledge. Yeah.
0: Yeah but but you have yeah. to be honest and it's just like you said Doug it's like if you're willing to put the work in and for me personally knowing myself I'm like there's no way I could ever self-publish anything you know so I, I go <laughs> to the outside and I'm happy with my choice but it is a choice
2: yeah and I think I'll finish this segment out with uh, some other topics regarding going with a publisher if you self-publish you're you're on your own you're on your own timeline right so you got to look at if you're going with a publisher, why are you going with a publisher? Are you going with a publisher because you've always wanted to publish a book with that publishing house? I mean, that is kind of a thing for some people, right? They're like, oh, I've always respected these guys. I want to have a book with my name on it and and that publisher. That is definitely a reason people choose sometimes. But then also the push that your editor will give you right uh, you you mm-hmm. might need that motivation that push and that advice and because they're, they're not going to help you write the book necessarily I mean certain editors are, are a little more hands-on than others but they will give you some pointers and they'll go over like a paragraph this was my experience <laughs> they would like go over a paragraph or a page and say like okay now do that throughout the book because you know you did this everywhere I was like oh son of a bitch okay um, <laughs> but th- they don't necessarily edit for content either sometimes again different editors have different styles but right. so if you need that kind of structure. That's another good reason to go with a publisher. But then also, I think one of the biggest reasons to choose the right publisher for your book is how are they going to promote it? Because one of the reasons you're only getting 8 or 9% is because they should be promoting your book. They should be promoting this and taking it to conferences and putting it in their newsletter and selling your book for you. That's one of the reasons why you go with a publisher is because they have that behind them. It's in their best interest to sell that book. And if they don't sell other books that are like the book you want to write... Well, what are the chances that it's going to do very well? You know, mine my book never would have been published by Taylor and Francis or Routledge, which is under Taylor and Francis, because it's just not the kind of book that they do, but since they bought Left Coast Press's catalog, now my book is has says Routledge on the on the outside of the spine when you buy it. And did they promote that book in the last five years or four years since they bought Left Coast Press? No, not even a little bit. It's never at conferences. It's never anywhere. But it's on their website. You can find it. You can buy it there. They've raised the price several times, which is stupid. It's just that I would never publish this book with them. This is not the right kind of book to publish with that kind of publishing house. So with that... You know, you're better off spending your money on an ArcPodNet membership. So go to ArcPodNet.com <laughs> forward slash members. Oh, that was
3: smooth, Chris. That was right? smooth.
2: Right? So <laughs> we'll be back in a minute to wrap up this discussion. <laughs> Welcome back to episode 241 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Doug, I think you had a comment right before I, I ended the segment.
1: Yeah, it's not going to be as a smooth segue as you're, uh, you're <laughs> selling there, but um, I was going to say something you guys had also mentioned um, just triggered something is if you're writing a book, I mean, we've sort of been talking about it as an individual, but you know, a lot of times a lot of people sort of team up and it'll be you and someone else writing a book or you and a couple of other people. and also, it, it, this comes back to sort of like your editor as well. Is the process of doing a book can take years. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the quickest I think you you might be able to get away counting it out in months if you already have an idea and you're super motivated and you can get everything done. But you're talking about a several year process. And with that, you want to think about like relationships In that sometimes like when you're going to a publisher, it's not so much the publisher, but the editor, because you're going to be working with this person for a very long time and they are going to be commenting on something that's going to be very dear to your heart may, or maybe not, you know? And I think, yeah, a lot of something else people need to consider is the relationship. So either the relationship between you and your other Authors, can you stand working with these people closely for the next couple of years? Also, you know, relationship with your editor. Do you like your editor? Can they give you honest feedback? Will you take honest feedback from them? Those are some things people Mm -hmm. need to consider.
2: Yeah, real quick on that. My book was essentially written, like I mentioned, when I showed it to my eventual publisher, Left Coast Press. And it was 13 months after that, that it was a hardcover book. (laughs) <laughs> like 13 months. And that's just because of the the proposal process. They had to accept the contract. And then, you know, I had an editor and then I had a copy editor and they had to do the cover and the book and just getting it into the, the factory to actually get it made. You know, all that has to go on a cycle. So 13 months and I walked in with 60,000 words written. Right. So that's a long time.
4: Yeah. That sounds about right. And also I, yeah. you know, I'm working on a book. I don't know how many words or so, but, uh, I think I started it and um, 2018 <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and it, yeah. it also was largely written too. So I didn't, I mean, I had to fix a lot of stuff, but um, it was pretty mm-hmm. much done and it's still taken four years. Yeah. But the other thing I think Doug brought up something important too about the relationships. The other thing you might want to think about is the relationship to your own self, because your, your emotions are going to get in there a lot. Right. So uh, I think that just writing in general, if you're the kind of person that writes, but doesn't want anyone else to see it, then you, you have to start with yourself first, because the thing that's holding you back is your own mind. If you're also the other kind of person that's pretty much like me that writes and then doesn't want to listen to other people's comments and all that other stuff, but you have to just swallow it when it comes to editors comments. Mm-hmm. That's another a growth thing, too, because nobody likes being told that this isn't good or this isn't actually what we want and just delete this entire chapter but a lot of times that's what you got to hear because what you're writing is not good and it doesn't make any sense and who knows why you even tried to put it in there right so if you don't have other people read your stuff and give you good uh, comments uh, not just technical comments, you know, of course, on structure and all that other stuff, but, you know, just comments on logic and why is this there? Like, you really need other people to help you make this finished project. And if you're the kind of person that can't deal with edits and comments and stuff like that, then you, once again, you have to start with your own self. And then finally, uh, it, this is something that you're going to be working on for a long time. And you're going to be really, really, really connected to this thing. And at a certain point, you just seriously have to let it go because there's only really two kinds of books that are out there. The ones that are just ideas in people's minds and the other ones that are finished and published. And, you know, if you ever wanted to get published, you just have to let it go and let those editorial comments and those other decisions that people are making on your work. Like you just have to let it flow through because if you hold tight on every single comma and every single change of word and, you know, cut and, you know, paragraph deletion, it's never going to get done
0: so true so true And it's just it feels so good yeah. though on that day when you let go you know you're like here you <laughs> go world whatever close enough it's
4: like the its what i imagine in stranger things what they feel when they <laughs> use the force you know whatever to just get rid of all your enemies like ah and they all just fly away like okay yeah. you're just, just gonna let it go <laughs>
1: totally true I think that's true of like all writing, basically. I mean, I'm not a particularly good writer, but I can do fairly decent editing. And one of the hardest things with editing is you can write like a sentence you really love or a paragraph you really love, but it actually won't fit into what you're writing about. And you have to learn to be like cut and paste that into another, you know, your, your word doc of like great ideas that just never happen sort of thing. Cause it's true. Like with a book, you, you'll have that chapter that you really want to have in there, but it, it completely messes up the entire flow of the, uh, the book. And so you, you have to be able to accept that you can just cut out things that it's great, but it's not great for what your particular thing is at that moment, And that Mm -hmm. is really tough.
3: I think uh, Doug brings a really good point up saying that he's saying, and I I don't know if he's being humble, I'm sure, but (laughs) that he's not a very good writer, but he's a good editor. And I've really, we have somebody on my staff that she's like, I can't do this because I'm not a good writer. I've never been a good writer. She just had this block in her head that I'm not a good writer. She is absolutely our best editor. Absolutely. And I, I think she's a good writer, but she still has that in her head. That's not where, where she's at, but she's our best editor. And so when you're looking for somebody to, you know, go over your uh, transcript or, or whatever it is that you're reading, you're looking for somebody, you're not necessarily looking for the best writer. You're looking for somebody who's really a good editor. Uh, I think to have both is important, but don't just like, you know, say, OK, I have to have somebody who's written a book before. I have to have somebody who's an amazing writer before. Sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, the people that are not the best writers are actually really good editors.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think in the last half of this segment, we should really bring up what most likely first time authors are always wondering is, can you make any money doing this? Right. Can you actually make any money, you know, thinking of maybe authoring or, or publishing as a as a career almost? Right. And and like, like we said before, if you're a Tom King or a Brian Fagan, you probably can, right? It's still yeah. not like Harry Potter numbers, but you know, <laughs> it's 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 good numbers more than likely. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to keep cranking out books like this because it's a long time, as we've talked about for the last almost hour. It it it's a long cycle in getting this done, and especially if you're going to put something together that's you know well researched and well written and edited. I mean, it's a it's a, a year to a couple of years, and uh, or more and. If you're going to do this as a career, well, you have to be able to support yourself doing that. So I will cut to the chase right now. Um, I'm still getting checks from Taylor and Francis. I get one every June. My last one was I would had to pull up my account right here. June 24th, which means payday is coming soon as Woo. we're recording this. It's June 5th. So I'm expecting anything from Taylor and Francis coming soon. And last year, which would have been, I think the seventh year or sixth or seventh year my book was out, I think last year was, because I think it was published in 2014. So that would have been the seventh year. We're coming up on the eighth year. But last year my deposit was, wait for it, (laughs) $43.78. $43.78. <laughs> oh,
4: all right, money bags. Big time, big time. <laughs> yeah. wow.
2: That's what I'm talking about. Uh, to be honest, though, with like zero promotion from either myself or Taylor and Francis, I'm kind of shocked that I got that much because, like I said, I get 8% if they buy the book from the publisher, right? Whew. 8% of, I think Taylor and Francis is selling it for like 40 some odd dollars right now, which is, again, ridiculous. It's a $20 book at best, but I think they're selling it for 40 something, and I get 8% off of that. Now, if you buy it from Amazon, which is more than likely where people are getting it, yeah. I get like or 4% or something like that. It's way less if you buy it from another, another reseller. And if you buy the ebook, I think there's an ebook and I don't think there's an audio book. I don't think they did one of those, but I think there's an ebook and I get even less off the ebook. So I'm shocked that it's that much when you're looking at 8%. I mean, that's like, I don't know, 50, a hundred sales, you know, or something like that or whatever it is in the, in the year before that. And it's calendar year. So they stop the billing at the end of the calendar year. And then they wait until June to pay you because they figure all that stuff out. So yeah, but yeah, that's where I'm at <laughs> with that book. Yeah, and it's been about that almost every year good? since I published it. <laughs>
0: that's my experience too, pretty much. But I'm brand new to the like my book was just published in January 2022. So I've what yeah. so far I've gotten is nothing because the check hasn't, you know, come around yet. <laughs> but my but my sweet deal is better than your sad eight percent, my friend. Oh yeah? <laughs> I, I, I think <laughs> I I think I'm 12 or something like that. And oh um, man. I know, dude. Is, I'm I'm famous, but uh, but that brings <laughs> yeah. up that is one of the main things people ask. You know, like how much do you make? And I would not go into it thinking you're gonna like have a new career because you're not Brian Fagan and you're not yeah. Tom King. But I would just think of it as a side hustle. You know, think of it as something like when that check comes in, you go, oh sweet, you know, oh that's cool. I'll go out to dinner because I wrote this book. Like you know, that's. That's what it is. That's that world. So, yeah, don't think mm-hmm. you're going to get rich. It's just a fun side hustle, but it's something you're passionate about and it's worth it, you know.
4: Well, a couple of things yeah. on that though cuz I I think I beat that, those records since Amazon pays every month. So, oh, when you self-publish oh, yeah. on Kindle Direct, yeah. like I have and I have 3 ebooks on there and they they I think the most expensive one is like 7.99, right? So, every other one mm-hmm. is 4.99. Every every month I get Anywhere from ten to forty dollars from those three wow. ebooks, and yeah. I, and I have for like the last I don't know seven years since I published them or whatever. Yeah. So that's what happens when you and and I hired editors to edit those books too. I think the first one I did it myself, and then after that I had uh, a couple other CRMers do like internal reviews on them, and then I had an editor actually go through it. And, you know, so that's, that's, if you self-publish, then you get the money, right? And you put it Mm -hmm. on there, you're responsible for all the content, but you get all the money and it just keeps flowing in, in a small stream. Once again, not enough to retire on, but the thing that my, my wife, oh, go ahead. What's Amazon's cut? Is it 70, 30? I don't remember. No, no, I think, I think they're less. Oh yeah. Yeah. The publisher gets 70 and Amazon gets 30, right? I can't remember, oh, i have to you, look at you it. When you
2: self-publish, I was wondering how, what your cut is when you self-publish, because Amazon definitely takes something for you to publish on Amazon, but I just couldn't remember what the percentage was.
4: So I know that there's a fee based on how many kilobytes, but it's like pennies per pennies per sale, oh, okay. right? Like less than a penny okay. even per sale because my yeah. books aren't huge.
1: And then they also, yeah. they it depends how much you charge for it as well. They take a percentage yeah, of it's over like... Seven ninety nine. There's There's a bunch of different, it's a bit complicated. Yeah. Is it? but like the, yeah. the more you try
4: to charge, the more they take. Right, Doug? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. How,
3: how about, how about the other side? We're talking about how much money you make. How much money does it cost? If you're actually, let's say self publishing <laughs> a book, an actual book, like a tangible book, not, not an ebook.
4: Yeah. I don't know. Cause uh, I publish <laughs> online. Right. So.
1: Right. In a well, sense, the- there's no difference because if you do, say, print-on-demand – because you, you're not going to be – so if you self-publish, you're not going to be able to, like, do a 100 or 200-book print run. I mean, you could and then spend the rest of your life hawking them at conferences. Right. Um, but yeah. you're, you're never going to get them into, like, bookstores or to universities. Right. But you could do basically print-on-demand. And essentially that – so Amazon does that as well, and there's a couple of mm. other places. Yeah. And and it's the same sort of deal. You you basically – they'll charge you, you know, X – it will be so much per – well, it depends – okay, sorry. This is going to get a bit complicated. But, you know, quality of paper, so your paperweight, is it hardback, paperback? Are you using glossy covers? Yeah, picture, color pictures, glossy, cover. Mm -hmm. You know, it depends on your cover, glossy, matted. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff. But but essentially, you could – you get that charge and it could be basically a fixed price and you could – pad on top of that whatever you want. So let's say you know it costs twelve dollars plus shipping, whatever that is where is what is to publish it, you can then just charge like twenty plus yeah. shipping or twenty-five. So it's it's up to you to do that. So it doesn't you can basically pass on the unit cost directly to whoever wants that. Right. If That's you're if, you if you're self publishing.
4: It. Well <laughs> so the other the other piece too, Doug, because I remember doing this through create space and they got bought by Amazon you, you do, Doug's exactly right. You choose the paper and you choose whether it's going to be paperback and what the size and dimensions of it are going to be too. So that matters. Like the bigger, bigger book with more glossy images is going to cost more right. to create. However, the person who buys it, they get a discount based on how many they get. So if they just get one, then they pay, you know, like whatever you set twenty four ninety nine. But if they buy 20 of them, then it could be down to like $21. And then if they buy a hundred of them, you know, it could be down to 17 when it only costs Amazon like 13 or $14 to produce each book. So once again, you, you set the price, but you also set the break on the deal. Mm-hmm. And you want to have an incentive for them to buy more of them.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. I know this is just kind of a, a little side conversation here, separate from what we've been talking about, which is just actually writing books. But I did want to talk a little bit about journals, which is the first thing that you know those of us that are... You know, start off in academia, that's the first experience that we have in publishing our actual written work. And I'm curious what everybody thinks about uh, where, you know, the future of journals is. That's the reason I ask. Uh, there was a, a recent um, email that went out um, to members and for the uh, California Archaeology Journal, and they literally had no submissions. Like Kathleen <laughs> Hall was begging for people to submit <laughs> and uh, still is. And, uh, you know, I think that it is a we're, we're seeing kind of a paradigm shift in that that used to be used to be competitive, used to be difficult to get yeah. uh, in certain journals to get yourself published. And now we have like just within a few years, we have journals that are begging for submissions. Yeah. And I'm curious what everybody's opinion is on why
1: that is the case.
4: I have my own ideas, but I super want to hear what Doug has to say.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've done the research on this. And the reason you're having that happen is, so like the number of journals is skyrocketing. Like I, I've, I'll, I'll try to put it in the show notes. I did a paper maybe five years ago for EAA or no, uh, the German one. One of those. It was it was one of the open access journal German journals. DF uh, whatever. I'll, I'll send the link. But basically, like. It looks like exponential growth. Like you see, I, I've tracked. You basically have a uh, you know not a lot of journals, and then it hits about the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, and essentially we now have uh, last count I had, and this is not just English language. Is like seven hundred journals, and that's probably not anything. We're probably pushing a thousand archaeology journals, and the reason behind that is consolidation. So. A lot of the publishers are now being bought out, and they're they're sort of turning into monopolies. Um, but what's driving that is uh, universities and the big bundles. So what happens is the publishers will bundle together all their their journals. So they say, look, uh, you know, for a, a low fee of what you know, ten million, you can get two thousand journals, and. Everyone looks at the numbers and like, okay, 2,000 journals, that's better than like 500 journals for the same price, not caring about quality. So what we've seen is just tons of organizations just start creating journals left and right because you know it, it costs them almost no money to create a digital journal. Even a print one costs no money for those big publishers. And almost all universities now do bundled big deals with a publisher. So they're not just buying one journal, they're buying 500 journals. And so it's all about the number. Manny was a big one before it got bought out and started just creating journals left and right. They also bought a lot of people. They bought uh, Left Coast Press journals. They bought the other smaller one, Adamira, I think. Mm -hmm. There's another one they bought. And then uh, Cambridge is now becoming a big one where they were adding more journals. Like it's basically become somewhat of an arms race to just produce as many journals, because it has to do with the big bundles for universities. And that's where the money's at. But see, um, on the flip
0: side, well, yeah, on, on the flip side, I'm, I, what I noticed though, is if you're going for tenure, it's always the same two or three journals that they want to see you in. So that's what I, why I think it's so interesting, this sort of dichotomy. Yeah. yeah.
1: There's also another paper that went out. This was published maybe 15 years ago by AAA, American Anthropology. And it really depends on the university. So some universities literally have, you need to be published in these three journals. Anything else, you didn't publish. They just they look at it as like, you, you, you wasted your time and you did, you know, <laughs> why were you wasting your time publishing anywhere else? But that's really mixed. Um, It really depends. And then there's a lot of other places that are just like, yeah, you know, Whatever, just send in your tenure application. Yeah, put a bunch of journals in there. Here's a box. uh, Fill it up, and uh, we'll see you at tenure review. So it's really mixed. Yeah, and and yeah. So basically, we're being driven by a ton of journals because of the economics of. It's not even has to do with archaeology. It's just the economics of publishing, and universities buying big bundles of journals. And that might change once everything flips open access, but at that point, it still does it They still have no incentive to have fewer journals because, you know, it costs them no money. Open access, even if they only publish one or two articles a year, it's it's free money coming in. Yeah. Uh, I, sh- I, I exaggerate with the free money. I know there's some minor costs and <laughs> stuff, but yeah, there's. Basically, there's you have so many places you could publish or shop around. So now, even if a paper doesn't get published in your first venue, you have, I don't know, in English language, I forget what, maybe three or 400 different archaeology journals. Uh, I'm talking yeah. like pretty much pure archaeology. If you break out into like museums and general heritage, add a couple hundred extra on top of that. I'm sorry, guys. We're probably going over
4: time now. It's all right. But the other critical factor too, Doug, is that there's just fewer professors who can ever write anything. And it's pretty much professors that are writing these articles. So, you know, you got fewer professors that are on the tenure track and more adjuncts. That means people who are overworked and, you know, they're not going to get their Mm -hmm. job. It's almost impossible for them to publish or get hired uh, after a few years. So that's another huge thing. There's just fewer people who are writing for this stuff at a time when there's more journals.
2: Okay, well on that happy note, I think we're going to end this podcast, at least the regular part of the podcast. However, as you can see, we do have a lot more to talk about journal publishing, which is more than likely the route that anybody who wants to publish and become an author is going to go is is more than likely the journal route just because as we've stated book publishing is still kind of like still a little special in the fact that it, it, there's more gatekeepers in in book publishing unless you self-publish. So We're going to do that in the bonus segment. So if you're a member, head over to your member pages and find this episode. You'll find the ad-free version with, again, no ads. And you'll find it typically a few days early, but you're already listening to it. So it's already out. And the bonus segment will be listed right there with the episode in the bonus pages, not in the regular pages, because this is a benefit. If you're not a member, head over to arcpodnet.com forward slash members. It's only $7.99 a month. I think I said per day one time, which would be you know, we'd all be driving Bentleys if that were the case, but it's not, it's seven ninety nine a month. And it's, I think 20% discount if you get it annually. So it's actually pretty affordable, helps us, keeps the lights on and you get a lot of value for that. So here we go. Uh, we're going to do the bonus segment next again, head over to those pages. And if you're not a member, arcpodnet.com forward slash members, we'll see you guys next time.
1: Goodbye. All right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh.
1: You weren't prepared for it, Chris. You weren't prepared for it.
2: That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com. Dot com slash CRM arc podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye, Doug. <laughs> Goodbye.
0: <laughs>
2: See you guys next time.
3: Thanks for listening, everyone.
2: You guys, I'll just waiting, just waiting. and Doug, I'm just going to just going to bring it back in. He's even muted. All right. We're going we're gonna to edit. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States. Tristan Boyle in Scotland.